Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face, you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello and welcome to Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith and I recently had the pleasure of recording live at home in Manchester, which is where this episode comes from. Enjoy. Without further ado, I am going to bring on my fabulous guests today. Miranda Sawyer is a writer, broadcaster and cultural commentator and she presents Sound and Vision on Six Music. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. Now, Francine Stock is my second guest. She is a broadcaster, novelist, and author of Inglorious Technicolor, A Century of Film and How It Has Shaped Us. And she's been presenter of the film programme on BBC Radio 4 since 2004. Please welcome Francine Stock. Welcome, Francine. So we are very pleased to be part of Holmes Celebrating Women in Global Cinema season. We're going to talk about a film that some of you may have seen. It is Colette, and it is based on the true story of the French writer Colette, played by Kira Knightley. It's directed by Wash Westmoreland, and it is about a spirited young woman who ghostwrites novels for her husband, Willie, and he's played by Dominic West, um, who is perhaps more interested in money and the Parisian social scene than in his wife's talent. Let's have a look at the trailer. Get used to marriage. Better to make marriage get used to you. People are begging for more. I don't want to write another Claudine. Are you out of your mind? Write! Bastard! No one can take away who you are. Destroy these. Incinerate them. You found me when I knew nothing. You molded me to your own desires. thought that I could never break free. Well, you're wrong. The hand that holds the pen writes history. Now, this is a film that I really wanted to love so much because I was so invested in the subject matter and the idea. And I do think Kira Knightley is absolutely brilliant in it and it is fun in places. But I found it was told in a very conventional sort of fashion. And I thought that was constantly undermining my enjoyment of it. Francine, how did you feel? I'm afraid I completely agree with you. I think um, I wanted to like it. I know a little bit about Colette from a previous existence when I wrote about French literature a lot. And... I have read a lot of Colette, and she would have been really disappointed in this film, I think, because it is it looks beautiful, and it's kind of teasingly erotic, and Dominic West is fantastic, and Knightley is really good too. But it's just soft. It, it just does not give you any sense of how tough her life was. What a tough writer she is. She's a really tough, relentless writer. If you read Cherie and the Death of Cherie, this is a woman who will not shrink from any kind of wart or wrinkle or you know, toughness of the female or male condition, actually. And I felt that this was just a sort of lovely version of it. 
Did you think that because I mean there's a lot of Colette's life that is edited out, especially the later stuff, and the latest stuff is actually when Colette becomes really, really interesting. So I wondered a little bit about. I mean, I enjoyed this film, but I was aware that there's a kind of entire kind of hinterland and and extra story that could have been told. So I think they almost made a deliberate decision. Um, Wash Westman made a deliberate decision to tell this part of the story, which is that she wrote loads of books and her husband t- took the credit. And so that is the story, part of Colette's story that we are concentrating on. I can completely buy that. But even so, the idea that, that the relationship that would largely define her life later on, which was with Missy, who's yeah. played by Denise Goffin, who was introduced in a really interesting way and then just like fizzles out. Yeah, I agree. That was yeah. so disappointing. Because that, that should have been the heart and soul of the film. So basically what you would rather have had is actually kind of less of the heterosexual relationship and more of the defining uh, kind of... Uh, relationship with Missy. Well, I think you could have done both in the same film. Without you could have had just a little bit less of Dominic West bonking everything in Paris, because we got that idea pretty quickly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And you could have had a little bit less of that. And also the idea that a woman is achieving her potential by you know taking a top off and wearing more eyeliner is not really quite doing it for me. Although she looks really good in the She bar. looks fantastic. <laughs> she looks fantastic I in every I thought I really wanted to have... I've never had a bob, a curly bob. And I did think, <laughs> oh my God, I really wish I should have had no, that No, she haircut. looked fantastic. But it became as though like this was the triumph. Whereas I think it was it was a stage, you know. And I think even at that point, it wasn't an unalloyed triumph. Mm. You know, she was having to deal with all sorts of difficult things at the same time. And the idea that, you know, you see her there in that famous costume with the breastplates and all the sort yeah. of... As though that was it. That it's was quite coy, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. Perhaps, it, perhaps they were appealing to a certain market. I mean, I think what's interesting about... I mean, Wash Westmoreland is an interesting person. And he previously made films with his partner, who's called Richard Glatzer. And they made Still Alice. And then quite soon after Julianne Moore won the Oscar, Richard Glatzer died. And his he was suffering from a kind of motor neurone disease. And he literally, when Julianne Moore was um, getting the Oscar, he was in hospital because he got a bit of pneumonia as well. And they cheered so hard <laughs> that all the nurses came because they thought he was having some kind of attack. Anyway, Wash said to him, what should we make next? And he said, well, he'd only move his toe. He kind of typed out Colette. So obviously he then had to make Colette. And they wrote that script really, really quite a long time ago. And I wondered slightly about that. I think that maybe if they'd written it now, they would have been braver because it would have been more of an audience. I think that we generally have developed and we are more keen to see slightly more interesting stories around transgenderism and things like that. And I think that maybe if it had been written a bit more recently, it might the emphasis might have been different. But also the other thing I'd like to say is really that all Wash's films are about identity and interestingly about female identity, mm. I think. So if you look at Quinceanera, that's about a young woman coming of age and what that means within the circumstances that she's brought up in and, and the kind of hipsterville that she lives in. And all the stories, you know, the same with Still Alice, it's around loss of identity. It's around female identity, and I think that's quite interesting. But I agree with you. I would have liked to have seen a bit more of the kind of outrageous one rather than the one that was slightly defined by her husband. And we didn't see the romance with Missy, really. Mm. They suddenly were in a relationship, and we didn't really see that courtship, and I thought it was a shame. But I think, picking up on what you were saying, I would just love to see a sequel. Yeah, there that's you true. You could, yeah, you could then do Colette 2. Colette 2, please. Yes, Colette Tarte. Yeah, OK, all right, that's Colette. Thank you very much. More, please. That's what we think. And Out of Blue, 
Uh, has anyone heard of this one? It's Carol Morley's latest film. It's her follow-up to The Falling, which was a tremendous film. It stars the great Patricia Clarkson as a New Orleans homicide detective called Mike. She's investigating the death of an astrophysicist, Jennifer Rockwell, played by Meryl Streep's daughter, Mamie Gummer. And uh, Patricia Carson plays this character called Mike, and she grapples with a whole new world of quantum mechanics, as if, you know, this procedure wasn't enough, and parallel universes as she tries to unravel the crime. Let's have a look at the trailer. What's the story, Mike? Can you explain your place in the universe? I am not the woman people see. We are all stardust. We're following the energy, like a trail of clues, leading closer and closer to this black hole's dark heart. Afraid of the dark, Detective. Such an intriguing film. It's one that's really hard to classify, I thought. Um, I was forever gripped but I was puzzled by elements of it I think probably the strongest part is the part of Mike played by Patricia Clarkson I mean, she's absolutely tremendous and I thought it was kind of boundary breaking in some ways in that she is a woman who is not at all defined by the men around her or by her children she's very much focused on her career she didn't sort of descend into any kind of stereotype but um, Miranda what did you make of her as a character? Um, I think there's elements of the film that I really like and then there's elements that it kind of just seem to slip away from me and then come back. And I think actually weirdly it's partly to do with Patricia Clarkson. So she's really a fantastic actor, but because she is required in this uh, film to be almost like Clint Eastwoody, you know, she's quite stoic. She is trying to grapple with the case and you're trying to grapple with her as to why she's acting in the way that she is. And sometimes that falls away from me, really, so that I lost a little bit and I think it's something to do with the central performance but I'm not sure what it is. She was brilliant though. She is brilliant. I mean it is quite a frustrating film in a lot of ways partly because it's enormously ambitious Mm. and uh, it is trying to have a kind of unifying theory generally and then bits of it keep falling away one way or another. I know what you mean about Clarkson. Overall I really liked it because like a lot of films that I like I don't remember an awful lot about the plot at the end. Yeah. It's much more to do with the mood. The atmosphere, which is which is always really what Carol is, uh, Carol Morley's about, I think. She's amazing at atmosphere. And this was shot in New Orleans, but it didn't have any New Orleans cliches. You yeah. know, it was really, that in a sense, that was really beautifully done. And I think she was quite serious about the astrophysics, uh, whether that necessarily comes across. I really liked James Kahn as the father. Mm. I thought, mm. you know, there were some great little cameos in that. And, and he was terrific. He was like a lump of old sort of meteor. And the mother was really amazing as well. Yeah, Jackie Jane Weaver. Yeah. yeah. She's uh, fantastic, isn't she? So yeah. it is good. But it is frustrating because it doesn't, I mean, rather like the story itself. I've never read the Martin Amos novel. I have years based. and years ago. The novel is a kind of an engagement with a genre. And I feel like this is the same thing. This is an engagement with a, a with a genre, with a mystery, with a who done it. It's a who done it. And I think that there is something about who done it that you want it to be a who done it. <laughs> but it actually reminded me more of sort of a seventies film like Chinatown, actually, yeah, yeah. because it had those sort of dynastic ideas, and it had the idea of things being deeply, deeply corrupt yeah. underneath, and really something really unpleasant lurking underneath all of it. Yeah. Not that you necessarily always quite realise what that was. Yeah. So I liked all of that. Um, you know, Nicholas Rogue tried to make this for 10 years. He had the rights to it, and he never did. And, and there's something in there about the sort of time slips and the, yeah. that is quite Nicholas Rogue. 
Yes, very much so, actually. I mean, I definitely really liked it, but it just kept those points where it slipped away and then came back for me. Yeah. I'm glad I saw it, though. It's mm. one of those films that I would absolutely recommend and to anyone also, who's interested in cinema. And it also stays with you for quite a long time, mm-hmm. which I really like. You know, yeah. there's quite often films that I come away and I think, well, I'm not sure. Did I like it? I'm not sure. And then it stays with you. think little things play around in your head. And I always think that's a kind of mark of a really good film. And it definitely benefits from a second viewing as well, which yeah. is another mark of a good film, I think, when you just get new th- things from it every time you see it. Yeah. Yeah. So who would yeah. we recommend out of blue too well i think all this audience would like it actually because you all look clever (laughs) i mean you need to have you need to go into it thinking that this is not a kind of thriller in the normal way so don't expect to go in and be bashed around the head with kind of um events because if things happen but they happen in a way that you don't expect so you need to be ready for that I think yeah I think you're right that it is ambitious but ambitious to play with form and to play with our expectations of genre and maybe that's one of the reasons why it is quite hard to get a grip on initially because you're not really it isn't doing anything familiar not really quite sure where it's going what it's doing but I really admire her trying to do something different with it and to not as you say slip into like really obvious stereotypes yeah or that roller coaster feel that you get with films which is all my worst where you sit in the beginning of the film you think I know what's going to happen now and then I'll happen now and now and now and then I come out Mm. at the end it doesn't do that no no if you want surprises, go see Out of Blue. I'd also recommend it to yeah. cat lovers because there's a great cat. There's fantastic cat in it, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I think we've had a lot of cats lately in cinema, so mm. this is a good thing. Um, there is a screening of the film and a Q&A with Carol Morley on the 14th of March here at home, so I suggest you all sign up for that. I think we're going to talk to the audience now. The floor is open to you guys if you want to talk about Colette, if you want to talk about women in film. Hi, um, I haven't watched Out of Blue but I wondered, did you think that Patricia Clarkson's character would hold the same power and seriousness if she was wearing a pencil skirt or something that was a, a shirt that had her elbows showing? Like, I just, I just wondered. Oh, that's quite interesting, isn't it? I wonder a bit that a bit about, and this is I'm slightly hopping from your question, but you know, in Three Billboards. I think about the kind of Frances McDormand character. When she arrives, she dresses basically like a bloke, but she also arrives like um, she's in a Western. So every time she comes into the town, she kind of walks in like she's about to kind of have a gunfight in the, in the OK Corral. And I think that quite often, and I would include myself in this, women can use masculine tropes masculine ways of presenting themselves in order to seem powerful and what's interesting about Patricia is that although she's wearing kind of masculine clothes because that's her job actually she is always a woman but she's not a woman that we might expect like she doesn't present a kind of um, male version of a woman so she's not coy she's not bewildered she's not ultra feminine she's just a woman doing her job and I find that actually quite inspiring really and I think I do think that quite often because we live in a patriarchal society it's easier to be taken seriously if you dress like a bloke and it's certainly easier to move through life I have found as a woman with short hair who tends to wear trousers it is easier to move through life in a pair of trousers than it is in a skirt you're less likely to get mithered to be honest and that's because we live in a patriarchal society there's no question about that I'm afraid I think that was well said Miranda I agree that was a great question, thank you. Hiya. Um, just when you were talking about Colette, you were talking about the idea of audiences maybe getting not braver, but maybe more open to movies that are potentially more progressive. Mm. Do you think that there's a risk that 
people might run away with that and make films on subjects such as like the LGBT community, women's identity, just for the sake of it and those films not be as good as they could be? Or do you think that any film that touches on those topics is a good thing, regardless of the film quality? That's a really good yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? Yeah. The more the merrier is what I think. So I'm quite happy to have a rubbish film. I mean, you know, like Bohemian Rhapsody is pretty rubbish and that, that's fine as long as there's a good film as well. It's kind of what I feel generally about feminism is that like, you don't have to just have one really brilliant woman. I'm quite happy if there's some really brilliant women and some rubbish women. That's fine. This is like many, you know, like get people yeah. in there. What's that Desiree Akavan film that was made? Miss Education of Cameron Post. Yeah. yeah. So that I really love that film. It's really great. Now there was another f- very similar film that was made around the same time, which I did not like as much. Right. Both those films, which were made around the idea of g- gay, uh, gay conversion therapy, mm. really, um, were made. I would rather they were made if it's a subject around uh, LGBT people I would rather they were made by those people because so that then there's a view that is not always seen that I would rather that really but I don't think that's quite what you're saying I think you're saying that there might be a sort of more like um, an opportunistic kind of cashing in and it's much more about tokenism isn't it mm. it's much more about the way that there was the black character at one stage you know yeah. or the or the woman <laughs> at some stage who would be part of the crew or whatever it was mm. I think you can see that kind of cookie cutter element already mm. a bit and you can see that people look at scripts and go oh yeah well that's timely but only in terms of inserting a character into a larger narrative in my opinion i don't think you're going to get someone who doesn't genuinely believe they want to cover lgbtq plus issues making a film because it's so hard to make a film especially in that arena even now so i don't think you do it unless you were passionate about it mm. but i think that in a blockbuster film you might more often now see a gay character popped in there or a character of color just kind of, okay And also not that kind of idea, you know, because it always used to be, you know, if you had X amount of people in a film, the black guy would be either the funny sidekick or they'd die. You know, I mean, that was kind of it, really. And that we have moved on from there. And they all have to go. go, That's what I'm talking about. Always. (laughs) Yeah, they have to bring the street element. (laughs) And so that was a kind of trope that was always there. And I think that we're moving away from that, which I'm really happy with, because actually we don't want to be bored. That's the main thing, I think. You know, you go to the cinema like you go anywhere else because you want to be entertained. And we have all seen quite a lot of these stories before, so you want to see more stories. That's almost the best argument for it, I think. There's loads of stories out there. I'd rather hear the ones I haven't heard before. Time for one more question. Hi. Um, I'm not sure it's a question, really, but just interested in your opinion in relation to the representation of working-class women in cinema. Just thinking of the Oscars and the BAFTAs, I can only really think of Roma as a representation of that and just wondering really what your opinions were on where the future is for working-class women, particularly working-class female actresses. Yeah, it's not been a great year, actually generally in films I'm trying to think I mean, that's it's true yeah, I it's think Roma. Roma, yeah that's Peter a really Lynn. good point yeah Lynn Ramsey is a working class woman but she wasn't really recognized um yeah I think what they <laughs> this is another massive generalization but this is what films quite often do I think that generally quite often what happens with working class woman idea in cinema is that they have to be battling against something and then win you know that's the idea so they're battling for their kids or they're battling for their community there's that kind of idea is quite often a, a strong one within cinema or lose yeah. but you know they've journeyed and we've we, yeah. with them uh, so those are the ideas that we tend to have it's it is rarer that we see just uh, i mean you know you could say beale street 
Yeah. Um, that's a pretty working class f family. Yeah. But I agree. But yeah. in, act in terms of actors, yeah, I think it's something, it's a conversation that is, is ongoing. I remember hearing an interview with Michael Caine recently saying, oh, I became, you know, an actor because I wanted to show people what a real Cockney speaks like. But we've yeah. still got this problem today, you know, that we don't have a fair representation of people of all kinds in the successful acting community. And I think there are factions working towards it, but we need more. And the stories aren't being written. The, exactly. I mean, the scripts aren't we need them being green lit. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Another great question. What a lovely audience. <laughs> right. And um, we're moving on to a regular slot we do on Girls on Film, which is the Bechdel test, pass or fail. To pass the test, the film has to feature two named female characters who talk to each other about something other than a man. It's clunky, but shockingly, many films still fail. So we're each going to choose one that passes and one that fails. And we might choose it for interesting reasons. It doesn't mean that we like or don't like it. And um, my pass just is Isle of Dogs. I don't know who's seen that one. This where, Where's the Hans Anderson's one? This is but they're all dogs. <laughs> it's Cheat. Yes, but they're all male dogs, apart from a couple of little ones you can see there. And the female dog is the worst kind of stereotype of the kind of cute one with a little pom-pom on her head and the other one is pretty much just there to have puppies uh, so it's all about the dogs and not the bitches it, it technically passes because Greta Gerwig the, the character that she voices is a foreign exchange student she talks to a female scientist about a serum and the scientist is called Yoko and that is pretty much how it passes and is um, I think vo voiced by Yoko oh, we see, yeah, there <laughs> you go there you go well that would make sense and I bet, it? Yeah, yeah. It's, all, it's, it's quite yeah. weird how dogs are always assumed to be boys aren't they so often and so it's a real bugbear of mine yeah, mine, yeah. yeah I have a female dog and yes. yes and, and she's yeah often assumed to be a boy and it's so often they've got an idea of man's best friend and they even cast female dogs in films and then write them as male. And that's hardly fair, is it? <laughs> it's so funny that sexism is sense to dogs. But, but <laughs> it's just so When sad. you think about it, it's, this is a really important conversation because you're a mother, aren't you? You know, yeah. kids watch films with animals all the time. They're being brought up with sexism if we've got constantly male dogs and then the cute little girl dogs. Yeah, I find it quite interesting, actually. My daughter is eight my son is 13 and she um, I can't believe I couldn't remember that I was like eight <laughs> yeah, eight um, and she often will um, name things female so toys are always female they're always 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 female and what I find it because I have been brought up you know the way that I've been brought up I automatically find myself going and he did and she went no she and I'm like oh yeah sorry sorry it's a she which is correct she is right she's better than me Excellent. Well, I, I do that. I'm very impressed you're doing that at an early age. Very good. Now, um, when I asked you uh, both about what you wanted to talk about, you actually mentioned the same film which you had brought up earlier this evening, and it is If Beale Street Could Talk. So Barry Jenkins' drama, of course, based on James Baldwin's novel. Now, first of all, Francine, does this actually pass the Bechdel test? Do you believe it does? I don't think it does. No. Uh -huh. right. Do you I think it does? Well, it's interesting because the plot is about a couple. It's about love, but it's about essentially about a young couple in love, and the man gets put away in prison. So then, the female protagonist Tish is quite often talking about him because that's what she's she's trying to get him almost out. exclusively. Yeah, <laughs> almost. But, <laughs> yeah, but also what I would say, what I really enjoyed about this film, is the fact that we follow her. So there is a crisis within the family, and the crisis is that her other half her, her lover has been taken into prison but we don't never see him in prison we see him through the glass but we don't follow him in prison we don't follow anything like that we follow her and what she is doing and her life and that is one of the reasons why I really liked it that we don't really follow him at all I did think this is a really beautiful film I mean, it's beautifully made it's 
Barry Jenkins who made Moonlight and it has that same kind of stunning romantic intensity mm. all the way through. However, I did feel, although it stuck with her, that she became a kind of sort of Madonna-y kind of, I don't mean that Madonna, mm. <laughs> I mean that she became like an icon really of suffering womanhood. That she didn't seem to have that much agency. And whenever women talked, they weren't necessarily talking about the guy inside. But when she makes an announcement early on, they're, they're, they do talk about the condition she's in, let's say, without yeah. sort of giving too many spoilers. So that isn't directly about a man, but it's kind of related. It is quite, it sort of is is, quite really. a, because it's to do with the, whether or not this is a suitable thing to have happened mm. with this man. True, true. Yeah, but I mean, it's also, I mean, it's a love story. So, you know, what happens in love stories is that the lovers, you know, we talk about the lovers, don't they? So, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl there, which is essentially kind of the basis of the plot, really. What it is, is girl meets boy, Girl loses boy and girl. So I'm quite happy because it focuses on her rather than the other way around. She's trying to win. I mean, in, in inverted commas, she's trying to win him back. She's trying to get him out. In the same way that we've watched lots of films of boys trying to win women back, but in a different uh, in a different way, really. Yeah, I guess so. But she's so damned perfect <laughs> she, that she almost is. That I slightly miss the, the the sort of I miss the real take of Baldwin's novel, which I think is is a bit more. I think has a bit more life. This was almost so beautiful. That it there were other elements, weren't there? Because um, because Regina King's character yeah, is different. She's she's, good. she's yeah. yeah, kind of amazing. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's just, it's a little bit like that kind of Juliet role of being kind of yeah. perfect all the time. Although she does lose it at certain points, doesn't she? She changes. Yeah. But then, I mean, the Bechdel test is is great. But it was also a joke when she first did it, wasn't it? I yeah. mean, it was yeah. so in a sense trying to force things through yeah, yeah. the Bechdel net. Yeah. This is what, kind of why hard. we like discussing because it is it was started as a joke and but almost it, it, it sort of became bigger than itself and it, uh, Sweden took it very seriously and then we were talking about it on the TV and then we're going but hang on a minute this is a really really low bar but that's kind of the point that it's low bar and we mm. like to talk about it because it starts these kind of discussions yeah. but by no means would I say go and see this film because it passes or fails the best <laughs> test <laughs> no go see yeah. the film it's beautiful but, but it's uh, yeah <laughs> but yeah this is a love it's a lovely film in many ways but yeah. I think it it's it's an interesting springboard for the discussion as you have. Yeah. Both just proved. Thank you. I'm going to move on to our fails. Um, now, my fail is mid-90s. Have you seen this? Oh, I haven't seen it yet. I would highly recommend it. I slightly kind of put, got put off because mid-90s was kind of my time. And I was thinking, <laughs> like, oh, no, I can't go watch this because it might really put me off. Well, it's kind of skater culture in the mid-90s right. in the I US. Yeah, yeah. So this is Jonah Hill. So he's written and directed it. It's sort of semi-autobiographical. It's about a 13-year-old boy who uses skating to escape the problems that he has at home skateboarding. Um, so he's got a stress single mother and he's got a very violent brother and it spectacularly fails because it's all about hanging out with the boys and the poor mother is just surrounded by kids and having a very stressful time but there are lovely sunny moments in it and really sweet moments of bonding between these young boys and problems occur when the boys really don't communicate with each other properly they're all sort of in their teens to varying degrees and there's one older one who is really sweet and lovely and actually opens up at one point and sort of talks to the young guy takes him on his wing and shows him how important it is to actually talk about your feelings now this makes it sound much soppier and sillier than it is but it, it communicates that message in a rather lovely way so I felt this was a fail in a very significant way because it was exploring the sort of blossoming masculinity and the differing ways that can go and the ways that can go wrong and ways it can go right yeah and it's I mean you've actually made me want to go and see it because you know it's very important for young men to understand that the point about their feelings is that they can articulate them rather than just thump them 
you know, if you can actually express yourself rather than just kind of hitting a wall or someone else or yourself, you know, this is probably quite a good thing. Exactly. Good. All right. Go see Mid-90s. So, uh, Miranda, what is your choice for your fail? Okay. So, (laughs) it's like, I mean, you know, you've all seen it. Well, maybe you haven't actually. But um, actually, you probably haven't. Frozen. Right. Okay. I'm going to talk about (laughs) Frozen. They've seen it. All right. (laughs) So, Frozen is an obvious thing to talk about because it's um, a Disney film where there is there are two um, sisters who are both princesses and the point, in inverted commas, the feminist point is that the love affair is deemed to be between the two uh, sisters and they one sister rescues another. However, there are problems with this film, which I'm sure you all know, but... The main one of the main problems is is not just I mean they talk and they talk don't just talk about men that's absolutely brilliant but there's two kind of main problems with the film um, other than it's just a Disney film <laughs> but you know I like I actually like Disney films but um, all the people that they are surrounded with and by people I include Olaf the Snowman and you know <laughs> and the reindeer are all men right that this is very very uncommon in a Disney film there's normally kind of some interesting female characters there are very I mean none. There are two women in the middle. And that means that weirdly, despite the fact that it's deemed to be a feminist classic from Disney, 41% of the lines are spoken by women and the rest, so more, are spoken by men. And the other thing is that we think in our heads that this story is about Elsa. And Elsa is quite interesting. She goes off. She's a bit weird. She has a kind of moment when she sings a fabulous song where she kind of understands her sexuality. And you think, oh, this is good. But actually, it's not, is it? It's about Anna. I don't know why they can't say Anna, but Anna. It's about Anna. And what is it about Anna? Really? It's about Anna's love affair. That's what it's about. She picks the wrong bloke, then she picks the right bloke. That is what it's about. So who ends up with the boy? Anna ends up with the boy. And so I enjoy Frozen. It's fine. But to be sold as a kind of um, feminist movement around Disney is incorrect, I would say, despite kind of little interesting moments of it. It is not. That is very interesting to hear that opposing hmm. view. I think it's an absolutely brilliant spot-on analysis. I love that forty-one percent of the lines. I know who, so who did that. <laughs> I don't know. I just remember, I've been to various feminist events in my life, <laughs> and, and I remember noting that down. I was like, "This is so depressing." <laughs> yeah, that is good. I did not know that. That is savouring thought. Um, so, Francine, what did you choose for your fail? Well, there's a bit of a, a clue actually in the title of this, which is Stan and Ollie. And <laughs> Stan and Ollie is necessarily a study of a long-term partnership. But in order to make it either more acceptable to the audience, but actually very much part of the story is the fact that at the point where we, we get them sort of towards in, they both have wives. And the wives are really interesting characters. But necessarily, the wives only talk about them. Yeah. They only talk about yeah. the men. And uh, it's Shirley Henderson and... Nina Arianda. Nina Arianda. I think we might actually have a, a clip to show oh, okay. including Great. them. Let's have a look. Two double acts for the price of one. Pretty empty last night. I guess people just don't want to see Laurel and Hardy anymore. Has he been pushing you a little too hard, babe? You know, Stan. You could have said goodbye, Oliver, a long time ago. We had a good thing going, but you had this big chip on your shoulder because I did a picture with someone else. I couldn't sleep for days when they told me what you did. You're just a lazy ass. Got lucky because you met me. Lucky to spend my life with a man who hides behind his typewriter. You betrayed me. Betrayed our friendship. You're hollow. There you go. Not enough of the women in that clip, but we've managed to find no, some. Tell us more about why you enjoyed their performances. Yeah, I thought I thought they were terrific, and I thought actually 
how much more interesting would it have been if they'd actually told the story from the point of view of the women and you just saw sort of Stan and Ollie in the background? Because we know quite a lot about Stan and Ollie just from watching them in their films. And in a sense, I don't think that this film gave you a great deal about the psychology of the two men, except for one really good row scene. Whereas the women, that was fascinating. That just would have been much more intriguing. Oh, that's so great. I really want to see that film now. That's absolutely, you're completely right. Because what you get from the film, obviously, is you just, uh, mostly what you get is, oh my goodness, I really like Stan and Ollie. <laughs> like, but um, yeah, but the female characters are very, very much more interesting. It would be so great if you just had Stan and Ollie a little bit in the background, a couple of silhouettes, like popping up and down There's while you actually get their relationship. There's another sequel. Yeah. Should we do the Sam Ollie sequel, but with the wives instead? Perfect. I definitely want to see that. But it did make me think about Shirley Henderson, who is so good in this, because Shirley Henderson in 24-Hour Party People, or Shirley Henderson in Train Spotting, you know, is never centre stage. But my God, you have an indelible impression. <laughs> you yeah. know. Even in Harry Potter. Oh, definitely. <laughs> she's moaning yeah. myrtle. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's a very interesting actor, isn't she? Because she's never really offered the centre stage. There was a um, Sally Potter film, wasn't there, called Yes, in which she was, which was all written in blank verse. And she's, <laughs> she's the maid, the domestic around the house who basically talks her way all the way through the whole thing. But I've always thought that she would be great. Put her in the middle somewhere. Yeah. Okay, that's a call out to the producers out there. Please put her in something. <laughs> Thank you. That was the Bechdel test section. Thank you very much. We are now moving on to films showing at home. Um, in this segment, we are going to discuss the 60s classic Barbarella, which is screening at home on Monday the 11th of of March. Now this film has a link with Girls on Film. Would anyone like to has a guess at what that is? Can anyone I hear? know. You I know. know. Go on miss, then. Miss, I know. Go on, Miranda. What is it? Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> Duran Duran got their name from Barbarella and Duran Duran, of course, sang Girls on Film. Do I win the prize? Gold star for you. Thank you. I'll buy you a drink afterwards. <laughs> Very good. Let's have a clip to remind ourselves of the wonder of Barbarella. You the little one-eyed wench. You have a good memory, pretty, pretty. Yes, sometimes I like to go among my people. Be like them. Ordinary. Evil, as you would call it. So, I'm your little one-eyed wench. I'm also the great tyrant. Well, that's nice. It amuses me immensely. Now, I suppose you're interested in the whereabouts and welfare of a certain party, yes? Well, yes, I am. I'm here on the orders of the President of the Republic of Earth. I'm here to find Duran Duran. I'm not talking about him. I'm speaking of the angel. Pygar? Yes, Pygar. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Don't you all want to go see it now? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it's such a mixture of terrible and wonderful and fun and awful and is it ironic? There are so many questions. Yes. <laughs> well, it's just a hoot, I think. I mean, you, we can, I'm, and I'm sure we will, we can unpick it from a feminist perspective. But if you just look at it as a kind of piece of entertainment, it's kind of amazing. I really like the way it looks. You can see how it looks. It looks like ludicrous. But... Um, there's a kind of style to it that obviously people have taken from uh, ever, ever since it's kind of been out. But there's a kind of particularly 60s style. So her spaceship is entirely... <laughs> 
<laughs> it's entirely carpeted in kind of like fluffy carpets everywhere. But when she sleeps, she sleeps on a bit of perspex um, with another bit of perspex over her boobs so you can see her boobs, you know, just, you know, because they shoot underneath just because they wanted to. And uh, there's a kind of kitschiness and camp that is just absolutely runs all the way through. A lot of things are played for laughs. It's an immensely entertaining film, I have yeah, to say. And, and it is a satire of sci-fi. And it's also a satire of a certain kind of Euro porn as well. Yeah, very isn't it? much I so. mean, all this kind of random coupling. The, f- the first sort of encounter she has with a middle-aged, uh, grizzled man who's an aviator or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's just joke porn film, Euro porn film. Yeah, stuff, I mean, he it? literally, he arrives and he's wearing a... <laughs> He's wearing a hairy outfit, so you know he's kind of really masculine. And then when he persuades her that she wants to have sex, he takes the hairy thing off and he's got a massively hairy chest underneath, exactly the same. It's really, it is very funny. But the reason that it works, and there were other people considered before Jane Fonda so that Sophia Loren might have been there, but she was pregnant, so that was no good. Why it works with Jane Fonda is she's so sensible. She's kind of incorruptible. Yeah. And uh, she just carries on with that sort of wide-eyed... I mean, just as she says there, yes, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is marvellous. I find that that particular scene is so weird because Anita Pallenberg, I mean, again, all those sort of, you know, sort of cult figures of the time, there she is looking wonderfully sultry. But then her voice comes out. It's Joan Greenwood. Yes, it's not her at all. Who's at least Anita, 25 years older. Anita Pallenberg, so that in itself is really strange. Yeah, very strange. I mean, the thing that's interesting about it is basically, you know, the plot. <laughs> Shall we say the plot? There is a plot, but in the plot, she gets to have various kind of encounters, sexual encounters. And what is interesting about them is that she initially doesn't really want them. So you can think, oh, that's a bit dodgy. But the thing that's interesting is that she becomes, in inverted commas, also again, sexually awakened. And at no point is she a victim. That's what's really interesting about it. At no point does she feel terrible. She feels great all the way through. She's having the time of her life from beginning to end. And that is why you kind of enjoy it. You know, you feel like she's just brilliant. She's never flustered. Is she? She's no, unflappable. Know, unflappable at all points. At one point, she she gets attacked by these children who have these awful dolls with metal teeth on them who come and try to take bits out of her in, 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 again, a very soft porn way. And before that, she's been taken across the ice by a giant manta ray that's pulled her along. And the, uh, while the kids, Very slowly. Very slowly. While the kids are thrown, basically, a piece of crystal at her head. I mean, you know, she just rides through everything. You know, you could put her in any situation, <laughs> couldn't you? And she would just come out inflappable. And she kind of turns it around when they try to kill her with, you know, an orgasm. She just has the best time. And yeah. <laughs> And breaks the machine. Yeah. Never a victim. Yeah, yeah. Do you think there's a part of it that can be insidious in, in our popular culture and, and sort of if people watch it as they're growing up might have a, a poor view of women or well, the it's wrong of, view of it's women? Of the, it, it's of its era, so it's of the 60s. And what mm-hmm. the 60s were immensely kind of um, excited about but simultaneously worried about was the pill. So it's basically about that. We can say that perhaps a kind of controlling male worry was that if women are free to have sex as and when they want without fear of getting pregnant, that means that they will then take control of their sexuality and they might, inverted commas, they might not want to have sex with them. So with men. So there's, there's a, well, with you you know, whoever you are that you're worried about your sex life. So there's a fear of the women having a choice of men. 
And the way that they flip this in this film is to say, actually, it's okay. You know, it doesn't matter. Whoever she has sex with, she's kind of fine. And it's to do with that, with women taking control of se- their sexuality and enjoying it. And there's never a kind of full sense of her taking control of her sexuality. Cause she just has sex because people go, we want to have sex with you. And she goes, oh, all right, then. She's very obliging, isn't she? She That was one of my problems with it. She's very compliant, you know, in that fancy. But then I like the way Miranda's selling it. Yeah, I I think she's she's not compliant because she feels she has no other way. I mean, on the whole, she Mm. kind of goes, well, well, because also she comes from a civilization where they've moved beyond sex, where Mm. they just take the They literally take ecstasy, don't they? Exactly. So (laughs) she just goes, well, if you want to do it the old-fashioned way, all right. But I think the problem actually with Barbarella is is not watching the film. If people watch the film, I think that's fine. It's to do with the images, isn't it, much more, which were then aped endlessly, the idea that what she wore was somehow, um, you know, and and done by subsequent... Directors in a really sort of pathetic. Yeah, that's an interesting theory. Yeah, and it's of it it is of its era. Yeah, I tell you what it is as well. Actually, maybe it's something that we we could unpick. It's she comes out, so she's happy all the way through, but she is also obliging all the way through, and that is something that's a bit difficult, I think, for for perhaps um, women of women to take. So you you could you know obviously she could say no. You know, that's the deal. You know, if somebody wants to have sex with you and you're not that bothered, then literally say no. So there's that's that is part of the difference now than then, yeah. I think. Yeah, and it comes out of the same sort of era as the happy hooker and all that. Yeah. You know, it's it's that kind of feeling, isn't it? Yeah, now no now we're on the pill, it's fine, you're gonna yeah. love it, whatever. So we have mixed feelings, but we still love it. Mm. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. summary, see it. and go and see it. Yeah, go see it. It's a hoot. It's great to see it on the big screen as well with your mates. Yeah, it's mm. a really fun one. And I'm afraid we're going to be wrapping up now. It seems mm. we've gone very quickly from my side. Anyway, I'd like to thank Miranda Sawyer and Francine Stock. Thank you very much. Round of applause for them, please. Thank you. I'd like to also thank Hedda Archbold for producing, Jane Long for audio producing, and very big thanks to Home for having us this evening. We will be back. And thank you all very much indeed for coming and joining us today. Thank you for being Girls on Film. Thanks for listening. The next Manchester episode will be recorded live on the 24th of April, so do join us then. You can book tickets at homemcr.org. Meantime, don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow me on Twitter at Anna Smith Journal. Let him go. What have you done to my scissors machine?